Today's sermon text is Acts 2, 22 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. We are in week two of um, who we are as a church. Um, we didn't forget who we are as a church, but we're, we're reflecting and reminding ourselves of why God put us here. Uh, we don't want to forget. We don't want to do church uh, as it is in such a way that we just assume that all the assumptions that we've 
that, that have been stacked up on us over years and years and years of doing church in the South, if this is where you're from, sort of define what we are. We want to be proactive at resisting those assumptions, some of which are good, some are not. Um, so last week we spent some time talking about how it is our intent as a church, and when I talk about, I mean, renewal church, I don't have any authority or uh, influence in any other church in this city or world, but this church I do, and, and our elders do, and it is our intent in our church that everything that we do centers on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we teased that out last week. Um, and a lot of you, I was surprised at how many folks came last week with all that snow and ice and sub 40 below, 40 below zero temperatures and all that stuff. And, um, I was surprised how many came, but we did have a lot, a lot of folks that were out. It was, it was difficult to get here last week. And so if you didn't listen to it, I, man, I entreat you, please listen to that message that there's so much in that, that, oh, I can't take the time to tease out today, but we want the gospel to be the middle of everything that we do and the in it to be like a centrifugal force so that everything that we do everything that we believe everything that we teach everything that ev- just everything is focused on the energy and the power of the gospel paul said that paul said the gospel is not just an idea it's not just a world view it's not just a theory it is the power of god unto salvation for all who believe it's the power of God. And so we want the gospel to be everything. So, so by way of a quick review, I want to remind us of what we talked through last week because I don't want you to forget it. I want you to remember what we talked about last week. And we talked in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, specifically in verses 3 through 8, of the fundamental teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And back then, a lot of theologians agree that the way that Paul presented the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 was the most known and agreed upon way to preach the gospel. And the reason he did it was because in 1 Corinthians, he's fighting for his influence in a church that he started a church that was filled with many people who were rejecting Paul's authority. And Paul said, wait a second, I am not less than Peter or James or any of the other apostles. I preached the same gospel they did, and he gave four statements to prove that he, he was voracious, that he preached a, an accurate and uh, a gospel of Jesus Christ. And those four statements, does anybody remember what those four statements are? It starts with Christ. Christ died. Christ was buried, Christ was resurrected, Christ was seen by many. So let's do that again. Let's get everybody in this, in this game here. So Christ, Christ died, the answers, the answers are on the wall behind me. Can you believe that? Let's do it again. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was resurrected, Christ was seen by many. That's the gospel. Now, those four statements assume a whole story behind it, which is why last week that those four statements are only significant if we understand the story behind those four statements. So if you grew up in church and you thought to yourself, what in the world does a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago have to do with me where I am today? This is the story that we need to know. So one more time, let's go over the gospel. What is it? Christ 
Okay, now, we, that's the gospel part. Now let's get to the story that gave birth to that gospel, why that gospel is so significant, and why the gospel is the gospel. Because gospel means, anybody know? Good news. Why is that good news to us in 2018 in Memphis, Tennessee? Why is that good news to us? And so we're going to go through briefly the six acts of creation. I'm going to take you through a gospel story arc that we tell to every person who wants to join our church because this is something that if you join our church, you've got to agree with us on this. If you don't agree with us on this, that's cool. That's between you and God, but you can't be a part of our church because only people who believe this stuff can be a part of a local church. I wish that was true in every church, but it's not. But everybody who is a part of a local church that worships Jesus should be able to say, I agree with this, something generally like this. Now, I'm going to give you six points, six acts of this gospel story arc. You might come up with eight. Some might come up with 17.3. But I'm just t- the, the reason why we have it as six is just because we're trying to find the easiest way to explain what is happening between here and here. We want you to know what's going on in this story. And so we're going to start off really briefly. I teased this out last week. So I'm going to run through this. If you are theologically savvy, you're going to be able to point out things that I missed. I know that. I know, I know, I know. Email Ron Surgeon about that if you've got any complaints. (laughs) But what I'm going to do today, what I'm going to do today is just briefly go through six acts of God's redemptive history in all the world. So beginning with number one, creation. At creation, guess what happened? If you said he created, you are an astute person. He created. He created the universe. He created the planets. He created the cosmos. He created humanity. And he created humanity with a stewardship. He gave us the stewardship of cultivating for, caring for, nurturing this earth, filling it with other people that also are image bearers of God. That's creation. Act two, anybody want to guess what that is? Anybody remember from last week? I'm just seeing if the answer was up there. There, Anybody want to guess what act two is? Rebellion. It's when humanity rebelled against God. And here's at least a couple of the results that happened as, as a result of the rebellion. Number one, we decided to follow our own way, our own wisdom. We rejected the wisdom of God. And as a result, humanity was plunged into an impulsive rebellion against God. Every one of us in our hearts have a bent against God and to follow our own ways of living. It might be uh, something as... Uh, seemingly benign as just being a little bit rebellious to, to your mom and dad, or it may be uh, overt criminal activity or everything or something in between those two poles. But in our hearts, we are rebellious against God. We really don't inherently trust God. We don't believe that he knows the way. We don't believe that he should be trusted with the way that we live our lives. We should make, be the ones who make the call. But not only that, creation was also plunged into chaos. 
You could read about this more in like Romans chapter 8, where it talks about how the creation is groaning for a day down the road, some future event when the world will be inhabited by people who are raised up and are new kinds of people. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But in short, rebellion, act two, was all of humanity and this whole world being stripped of its shalom, of its wholeness, of its peace, of its prosperity, of its love. That's rebellion. Act three, promise. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's an allusion to this hero savior who will come at some point down the road. And that hero savior will, with his heel, step on the head of the serpent deceiver. That leads all of us away from God and influences all of us to rebel against God. And this illusion is teased out through a series of covenants known as the Old Testament in our Bibles. And it's in this this series of covenants like the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant that God, that scripture narrows and broadens on this promise that one day a hero savior will come and he will deliver us from all of our sins, from Satan's influence, from suffering, from all that stuff. This is promise. It's promise. After promise comes incarnation. And incarnation is our word that we use to describe God coming down, putting on human flesh, and dwelling amongst us. And his name is Jesus. And for a little over three decades, God lived among us. And he carried out mighty works and mighty exploits for the glory of God. And scripture says that was God's way of marking him out as the legitimate Messiah. The legitimate Messiah. Because through all those covenants, all those covenants that we talked about in promise, that they were all based on God making an agreement with one man, this man named Abraham. We don't know where he came from. We don't, like, we don't know his background. We don't know. He's just this obscure man, this man from the land of Ur. And God chooses him, and then God tells, he gives him a promise. He says, Abraham... I'm, my paraphrase, I'm so fed up with the way that human civilization is functioning, the rebellion, the sin, that I'm choosing you and I'm going to start a new kind of ethnic group with you, a holy people. Well, his descendants went on to become the Israelites. And God told Abraham that your family is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. A couple of months ago, we talked about what it means to be blessed in a new covenant, with a new covenant understanding. And what it means to be blessed is it means to be reconciled with God. And so God called Abraham and all of his descendants, the Jews, to be the force that would advance the gospel of reconciliation because God loved the world. And he loved it so much he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the world. He loves every ethnic group, every one of them. Which is why racism is so evil and so sinister and so anti-God. He loves everyone. And so Jesus comes along. And this ethnic group, the Israelites, though they were God's chosen people, they failed. They failed. They were judged. 500 years before Jesus, five or 600 years before Jesus, they were carried off into captivity as a judgment from God because they failed God. They were not a society of justice and love and truth 
but they were a society of adultery and idolatry. And so there was this longing that intensified in that, five, in that half, a, half a millennium before Jesus came. And that longing was basically this, when is the Messiah going to come and deliver us? When will he deliver us from our enemies? When will he set us free? And God sent the Messiah and his name is Jesus. And Jesus came to Israel and he is their rightful king. And because Jesus is Israel's rightful king, don't miss this. He is the world's rightful sovereign. Because God used the Israelites, his intent was to use the Israelites to bring reconciliation between God and the world and every ethnic group. The king of the Israelites is also the king of all the universe. This is why we worship a Jewish God. This is why we worship him. And one day he will come back, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus died. He was buried. He was resurrected. He was seen by many. And in those days, those weeks in which he was seen by many after his resurrection, he taught the kingdom of God to his followers. And he told them, you now go into all the world. This brings up our fifth point, sending. You go into all the world. He was talking to the church, the new Israel. Go into all the world and bring my gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every ethnic group, every race, every person. Bring it everywhere. But before you do that, make sure that you wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came, empowered them to bring the gospel to all the world. And right now, the church is living in this time of now and not yet, where the kingdom of God has come into the lives of those who believe in Jesus, and yet we're still here today. Guys like Bud and me and you, and we have Jesus in our lives, and yet we still look in the mirror and go, man, I don't like that about me. That's broken in me. And yet we have a hope that one day when Jesus returns, and this brings us to point number six, restoration. When Jesus returns... He will raise us up and give us new bodies. We will be resurrected just like Jesus was resurrected. We will not be made invisible and play invisible harps and jump from cloud to cloud singing praise and worship songs for all eternity. God is going to bring about a new creation. This earth will be remade in some way that I can't explain metaphysically. And God, heaven, will come down and be merged with earth. And all of those who follow Jesus in this life will be raised up with new bodies, with skin and bone and blood and blood. That knee replacement you had won't be metal anymore. It'll be bone again. And we will run and we will talk and walk and we will eat and we will feast and we will bask in the glory of the light of the face of Yahweh. God. And we will steward once again and enjoy this earth, the new creation with Jesus, just like we were intended to do back at act one creation. Right now, what we're reading about in acts two is point number five, sending the church has been sent into the world in as heirs of Abraham, carrying that same commission that Abraham was given, repeated by Jesus, go into all the world. We go into all the world as the church and bring the gospel to every creature. And that's what Peter is doing in Acts chapter 2. Uh, would you, Tommy, would you mind handing me that water? Thank you. 
Um, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the first sermon. Once the Holy Spirit has come upon the church, empowering them for mission, bringing the gospel to every creature. So by way of review, let's do this again. What is What are the four points of the gospel? Four essential points of the gospel. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was resurrected. Christ was seen by many. One more time. Give it to me again. Christ Okay, now let's talk about the gospel story arc that gives birth to that story, to the gospel. So the gospel story, the six acts, and again, if you've got nine, go ahead and say those if you want to, but I'm just, six basic acts of the gospel story arc is what? Creation. Creation. Where are we in that? Sending. Number five. Where will we be, those who follow Jesus? Restoration. Why? Because of number four, incarnation. This is our life. So again, uh, Izzy, would you take that off the screen, please? Or Catherine, please take that off the screen. Um, What's number one? Act one? Creation. Two? Rebellion. Three? Promise. Four? Incarnation. Five? Sending. Six? Restoration. So good. What's number three? You're good. You're so good. So number six. Number seven. Okay. Just checking. So there's a reason. So if you notice, and I don't have time to go into this, but there are some things that Peter says that help us to understand what he assumed as he was talking to a Jewish crowd on the day of Pentecost. Like for instance, four times In Acts chapter 2, he addresses his sermon using words like this. Um, uh, Like verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. The NIV says fellow Jews. In verse 22, he says again, men of Israel. He repeats it again. Why is he repeating it? When you repeat something, what what are you going for? Emphasis. Would you agree with that? Men of Israel, NIV says, fellow Israelites. He wants them to remember the story that they are in. Uh, look at verse 29, brothers. He says again, NIV, fellow Israelites. Verse 30, let all the house of Israel therefore know. So four times he's reminding them, guys, you are Israelites. The gospel is good news to you because of those, my paraphrase, six acts Our story comes from this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are our patriarchs, our fathers. We are living out their commission to be people that bring blessing to all the people of the earth. And does anybody remember what it means to be blessed according to the New Testament? At peace, reconciled with God. Yes, yes. Which brings about shalom in our lives. Yes. So this is what's happening in this story. And this is why he references, like if you go back to verse uh, 25, for David says concerning him, Peter, recalling from memory, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, he says this, for David says concerning him, why David? Because there was a covenant that God made with David when he says that there will be someone who will rule on the throne of Israel for all eternity. And they'll come from your line, David. And guess who came from David's line? 
Jesus. Say it with a J at the beginning. Jesus. Sounds like Jesus. Okay. Jesus. All right. Jesus came from David's line and he rules for all eternity. As a matter of fact, if you want to check me on that, here are a few verses you can write down to read about the Davidic covenant. Here we go. Just four of them. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. And Psalm 132, 1 through 18. One one theologian said it this way. Israel's true king is the world's true Lord. That's how the logic of Messiahship works out. Messiah means king. Israel is God's chosen people for the sake of the world. So Israel's true and final king, when he arrives, and he did, will be the world's rightful sovereign. When we say Jesus is king, that's what we mean. That's what we mean. That's what we mean. So... We come to sending, and I'm going to wrap up the message by taking you to verses 39 and 40. Check out 39 and 40. Peter talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit entering into our lives and giving and and raising us from the dead. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Holy Spirit enters into our lives. And he raises us up, giving us the ability to have faith and really believe in Jesus. And he gives us growing affections for Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. He says, this promise of the Spirit, in verse 39, is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Can you say all? Would every one of you say all? Would even those who are refusing right now say all? Everybody say all. Everybody say it. It's for every one of us. There is nobody this promise is not for. It's for all of us. And with many words, he bore witness. So Peter continued preaching. Luke writing this is like, man, I can't keep up with you. I'm running out of papyrus here. You know, I can't keep up with you. With many more words. So this was a long sermon. Luke in Luke chapter 2 gives us the gist of it. And he says, with many more words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying these words. This, in my strong belief, is the hinge verse in this text. When it comes to what we do in response. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves. Now, what, he's not, what he doesn't mean by save yourselves is do what Jesus did. He's not, he does, that's not what he means by save Saved when it comes to what Jesus did was he died for our sins. He was punished for our sins. All of evil was poured upon him and he willingly allowed himself to be crucified. He was, he, Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was resurrected. Christ was seen by many. He went through all of that for us so that we could have newness of life if we put our faith in him. That's not what he means by save yourself. What he's saying is respond to this sermon. Recognize that what I'm saying, Peter's saying that, recognize that what I'm saying will deliver you from this present evil age that is shaping you and morphing you further and further and further away from the image of God. Kick against that. Reject that. Save yourselves. That word for uh, 
save in this text. Uh, in, in the original language, the tense is such that it means this. Begin to do this now. What he's not saying is answer an invitation at the end of a church service and it's all squared away. That, that's good if, if you're a part of a church that does that. But save yourself is make, this is a defining moment in your life. Make a decision right now and live your life in such a way that you are building on the decision to reject the ways of this world and embrace the ways of God. And that brings us to our text this morning. And you're like, what? It was your introduction? I'm almost done. I'm almost done. <laughs> Verse 42. And so here's what they practiced in order to save themselves from this crooked generation. Because the generation we're living in is still crooked. Generation is just a word that means it's a way of life at that time. And that with our generation, the way of life during this time is also crooked. It's also perverse. He says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. This is what they did. Yes, they responded to Peter that day. They embraced Jesus as their king. 3,000 of them did. I mean, there were tens of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem that day. But 3,000, at least 3,000 men, not counting their families, their children, their wives, not counting all them, but 3,000 heads of households repented that day and embraced Jesus as their king. They were baptized. Peter commanded them, be baptized. And to save themselves from this perverse generation wasn't just believing in Jesus. Because belief, unlike what the southern church preaches, belief looks like something. Belief is not just turning on your mind and saying, yeah, okay, I'm cool with that. Belief is, real belief is always accompanied by something. Intent, action, behavior. To be clear, I am not saying that intent, action, or behavior saves us in an atoning way such that we have been given peace with God. Only Jesus' behavior and actions and crucifixion and resurrection did that. We are not, we don't come to God through works. God doesn't look at us and go, you know what, man, that Ken Stortz and Joy Stortz, whoo, power couple. I need to save them. They are awesome. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Carl and Mary, Carl, look at his hair. I've got to save that guy. It is so cool. I mean, Clarence and Tanya, man, these are some godly folks. That maybe they need a little bit more of me in their life. They're almost there anyway. I might as well save them. That's not what we're talking about here. Every one of us, no matter what our life looked like, was bankrupt no matter the level of morality that we practiced. Bankrupt of God. We need Jesus 100% to fill that in our lives. We are talking here not about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus when it says save yourself. We are talking about our response to the gospel when we hear it and the core practices that we begin to embark on so that we can nurture the gift of the Spirit in our lives. And how did they nurture the gift of the Spirit in their lives? He didn't say, now make sure, guys, you go to church every Sunday morning. They did that. They worshiped traditionally on the Lord's Day. 
They got together and they were anticipating the second coming of Jesus. And every time they gathered on a Sunday morning, it was about remembering that on a Sunday in the past, Jesus was raised from the dead. We gather as the church to worship him. That's why we do church on Sundays. Not to impress you, not to make you better parents, not to make you better husbands and wives, not to, not to give you that bump you need for the rest of the week. It's to worship Jesus, period. But we gather together in community to practice the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, which was the Lord's Supper, fellowship, which many theologians agree was a shorthand for eating food together a lot. I'm, I'm so glad that's in there. Eating food together a lot. Oh, that's awesome. Like every day the question I ask, what are we eating for, what are we having for dinner? Where are we going to eat? Like every Friday, we, this is in our culture. Even though we're not communal like they are, a communal culture, we all do the same thing. Every Friday we're thinking about going out with friends. Like, where do you want to go eat tonight? Chili's? No! Don't say that ever again to me! You know. Um, their con queso is awesome though, I will say that. Um, so the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and what else? Prayer. How, why, there are so many people who put the onus on us as leaders, as pastors. Why is my church not helping me grow more? And there may be flaws in the way some churches, their systems operate. There may be, there, that may be broken. I'm not saying there's a lot of toxic, unhealthy churches. But there's a lot of folks who no matter what we do, no matter what carrot we dangle in front of people, will not bite when it comes to the essential core practices of following Jesus. Gathering together often to pray, to immerse ourselves in Jesus' words, his teachings, to have dinner together, and to practice the Lord's Supper, to declare his death through the practice of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to leave you today with one thought. I'm going to tease it out a little bit more next week. Why do we believe, why are we a church that continues to practice community groups, even though some of our community groups are a total mess? It's one of, the, my, it's one of my biggest, like, it, it may, this is the hardest part of my job, leading community groups. It is so hard, like herding cats. Nobody in seminary tells you how to make people do stuff they don't want to do. I have no idea how to do that. But I will say, without being legalistic, I hope, I truly hope. I'm not saying that if you don't do, if you don't be a part, if you're not a community group member, you're going to go to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying this, that it is God's clear intention, borne out by the rest of the New Testament, that we were called through our salvation to come together often with other followers of Jesus, to get to set ourselves in submission to God's word, to eat food together, to practice the Lord's Supper, and to pray together. Your healing is waiting for you in community. Just look at Bud's life. Going to treatment, sitting with other men, who are also facing darkness in their lives, sharing their stories, has led him to a new place, a space spiritually I've never seen him before. Hard days are down the road for him, just like they are for me and you. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says that as long as it's today, make sure you encourage one another.
A friend of mine, a mentor of mine says, I need you to encourage me every day. You know why? I'm like, why? Because the Bible says so. I need people in my life, whether I feel like it, I need it or not. I need people in, I need to be in community. So I want you to know when you walk out of here today, when we talk about, hey, join a community group, that's not like just a pragmatic approach to church life for us. It's not like the best way we found to hurt everybody around. We believe theologically the reason we should be doing life together is so that we can practice our faith, sit under the, the authority of God's word, break bread, eat food together, and pray because those four key practices are what will nurture the Holy Spirit's presence and guidance and transformation in our lives. If we recoil from community, we're only hurting ourselves. And honestly, holding back the church. No condemnation. But we're going to talk next week about how mission springs from practicing community together as we continue to go through for the next few weeks who we are, what we are, what are our core values. Jesus, thank you for everybody today. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for this opportunity to share your words. Lord, as always, I pray that anything that I said that was not of you, that was of my flesh, my own faulty wisdom, I pray that somehow you would strike it from people's minds and help us, Lord Jesus, to be nurtured and dig down deep in your word. Your word is life, it's truth, it's joy. I thank you for Renewal Church. I pray once again for Bud. I thank you for his life. I thank you for day 104. And I pray for hundreds and thousands of more days of sobriety, of clarity of mind. And Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone in here today who is facing darkness, whether it's alcoholism or something else, that we would know that we at least have a friend in Bud. There's a way to begin to step out of the shadows into the light. I thank you for every person in this room. It is only my heart's desire that they lay hold of the glory and the beauty and the riches of Jesus. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, dear ones. See you next week.